Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Holocaust denial can be viewed as another form of hatred against the Jews, and preventing it can be understood as a form of warding off hate speech. Germany has made it a crime punishable by law. Other European countries have similar laws. In his book, Outlawing Genocide Denial, The Dilemmas of Official Historical Truth, out from University of Utah Press, historian and political scientist Gunter Lewis says that while the rationale for such laws seems reasonable, we should carefully consider the dangers these laws could present. He says that allowing governments to dictate historical truth and how events should be interpreted can be counterproductive in democratic societies which value freedom of speech. We're going to look at examples of Holocaust denial laws not only in Germany but Austria and France, uh, examine cases in Switzerland, Canada, the United States, and international bodies. And in his book, uh, Professor Louis Probe's Criminalization of the Denial and Affirmation of the Armenian Genocide and looks at state-mandated genocide education. Gunter Louis is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at University of Massachusetts Amherst. And his previous books include The Catholic Church in Nazi Germany, The Nazi Persecution of Gypsies, The Armenian Massacres in Ottoman Turkey, A Disputed Genocide, and Essays on Genocide and Human Intervention. Professor Louis, welcome to the program. Thank you. Appreciate you taking the time to be with us. This is a very important and interesting topic, and uh, glad to have the book out from University of uh, Utah Press. I'd like to start with um, what, what the penalties are in, in Germany. I think uh, today... If, if, you know, a German citizen were to stand up and, or write or put out on Facebook uh, something denying the Holocaust, you can, you can be, what, fined, sent to prison? What are the penalties? Uh, the penalties will vary. Uh, it definitely will be a fine. Uh, there have been uh, cases where a repeat offender has been sent to jail. Um, the plates of the books are usually seized, and the book is physically destroyed. In other words, you will not find it anymore in uh, public libraries, for example. So that's, uh, and to American sensibilities, that seems, uh, you know, it's, it's seems un-American uh, because of the First Amendment, actually seizing the book and, you know, book burning and that, that type of thing. Uh, tell me about the rationale for this. This this goes back in part to the Weimar Republic, right? And, and it, yes, it, it does. Uh, the uh, Germany feels, and it's a very widespread view, it really is the majority view, that uh, the Weimar Republic failed in part because the Nazis were able to have uh, unlimited freedom to propagate their gospel of hate and deception, uh, and that a democracy, therefore, is entitled to, in in fact, it needs to defend itself. Um, And one way of defending itself is to forbid uh, utterances, uh, speech, um, which is considered hate speech, uh, which instigates possible violence, uh, and that includes uh, the Holocaust, the uh, final solution of the Jewish question in World War uh, II. Yeah, it, it's, uh, you, you outline this clearly in the book, uh, and I understand it a little better, I think. The, the, the foundation, the rationale for this, the Weimar Republic was seen as uh, committing suicide. Uh, in, in other words, the, the Nazis were able to use freedom of expression to to kill the democracy exactly and that's why they are uh, the german uh, federal republic from the beginning uh, considered itself to be a militant democracy and that means exactly what i said before namely that uh, such a government has the right indeed the duty uh, to defend itself uh, against who want to use democracy to destroy it so in in america 
um, the you can you can infringe free speech only, and we've heard this this expression a lot. Clear and present danger. You, you can't stand up in a crowded theater and cry, uh, cry fire, for example. Uh, falsely fire. If, if falsely. <laughs> if it's a real fire. If it's okay. real, that's 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 a good point. Yes, you can do that. Yes, uh, yeah. it, it's a different standard in Germany. Yes, it definitely is. As I said, the, and the United States is really quite unique uh, because most European uh, countries adhere to the German practice with varying degrees, uh, but uh, none of them have our First Amendment, which really provides an almost absolute protection to uh, speech. Uh, uh, you may recall uh, some years ago there was a procession of uh, Nazis uh, through a suburb of Chicago, uh, populated in large part by survivors of the Holocaust. Uh, they tried to prevent, uh, the municipal government tried to prevent this march, uh, and it went all the way up again to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court upheld the right to march and to propagate the uh, Nazi gospel. And uh, the, the rationale has always been uh, that's where free speech is really tested, right? If you're, if you're confronted with speech, you absolutely hate Exactly. Uh, a, a good speech does not provide need, uh, does not need any protection. It is bad speech, dangerous speech, inflammatory speech, uh, which uh, which has to be protected. And as Supreme Court judges have said, uh, the best remedy for bad speech is better speech, not suppressing speech. Yeah, it's this idea of the the, the marketplace of ideas, right? But uh, I guess if you have an example of Weimar Germany, the Nazis taking over, um, under that view, the the marketplace of ideas didn't work. Well, I think the uh, Weimar Republic did not perish because the Nazis were allowed free speech. I think the Weimar Republic perished for various other uh, reasons, a uh, resentment of the Versailles uh, Peace Treaty, um, the... uh, Economic this severe economic uh, dislocation. The Great Depression in in Germany was particularly severe. Uh, large scale in inflation at one point, which uh, um, destroyed much of the uh, German middle class, or at least severely weakened it. So there were a number of important factors uh, which I think account for the collapse of the Weimar Republic, the failure of Republican forces to unite uh, against the extremes of the right and the left. I think it was these factors uh, rather than uh, the uh, speech of the uh, Nazis and other such groups uh, that destroyed the Weimar Republic. Uh, That is the important point. But the Germans feel they don't want to take any chances. And given what is at stake, uh, it is a position which I find one can understand, although one does not necessarily agree with it. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I think a lot of us can understand at least the rationale, right? It's the the stakes. Yeah, right. The stakes yeah. are just so high in this case. Uh, anybody who's who's promoting genocide or or saying genocide didn't happen, uh, that's just potentially so dangerous that we have to have laws against it. Exactly. Uh, so there are other there are other countries who've who've enacted such laws. Uh, tell us briefly yes, about some uh, of those. Austria has, uh, in part, for the very similar reasons, because Austria, of course during World War II when all these things were happening, uh, was part of the Greater Germany. Uh, we have uh, similar laws in, in France. Um, and in Switzerland, the uh, law goes even further because it outlaws not only denial of 
the Holocaust, um, it outlaws denial of genocide altogether. And that has meant, for example, that a Turkish politician uh, who came to Switzerland and gave a public talk on uh, what the Armenians called the first genocide of the 20th century uh, and denied that there was an instance of genocide at that time in World War I, uh, was convicted um, and uh, severely fined. Uh, uh, and there has been a second case uh, of a similar kind. And uh, I think the European Union has... Uh, yes, and the European Union has passed a framework resolution, which, however, has not yet been fully implemented. Uh, it should have been implemented by now. All uh, member countries were supposed to criminalize denial of genocide. Uh, but this has not yet uh, taken place, in part because of uh, opposition. Uh, there was opposition in England. Um, the Constitutional Court of Spain uh, similarly uh, denied the right to pass such legislation. So this is in many ways a situation in flux. But still, um, a good number of uh, countries have these laws, although uh, the controversy is most alive really in countries where you have had litigation, where the law has been challenged or where large numbers of people have been convicted under it. And that means Austria and Germany for the most part. Mm. Has there been pushback? Are there people in, in say, Germany who do disagree with the, the fact of the genocide denial laws? Not much. Uh, the, as I said, the majority um, of the uh, intellectual community seems to support, seems to support the, the, the legislation. Uh, there have been um, writings uh, that disagree, but they really have had no impact. And by and large, I think public opinion uh, supports the law. I wonder if you could tell, maybe just to select a case, tell us about a, a case, maybe in Germany, um, that, you know, the, as, as it's proceeded along using this law. Well, I mean, uh, some extreme cases involve uh, the singing of songs um, in a pub. Uh, Nazi songs uh, that uh, deny uh, the Holocaust. Uh, that is considered enough of a violation, uh, and uh, this person uh, was uh, was fined. Uh, you cannot uh, go into a pub or restaurant as a singer and sing these kinds of songs, Nazi songs, neo-Nazi songs that deny the uh, genocide. I mean, that's really in many ways the most extreme. But of course, then most of the cases have involved writings of, um, of authors uh, who go to neo-Nazis, who go to great lengths uh, to argue that uh, there were no gas chambers in uh, in. Uh, Auschwitz, um, that they used Cyclone B merely to delouse uh, that the whole uh, charge of um, final solution is a uh, cooked up uh, plot uh, of world jury uh, and so forth. These are writings that uh, keep appearing despite the law. Uh, and they are promptly uh, seized uh, and the uh, authors are promptly uh, uh, accused, charged, uh, and usually convicted, uh, which is another interesting point, because despite the law, uh, it is simply unable to prevent these kinds of writings from appearing. And uh, the latest uh, angle of that, of course, is the Internet, um, which uh, is e even more difficult to control. 
but there have been cases uh, uh, where um, uh, people who placed this kind of stuff into the Internet have also been punished. What is, uh, to the extent you get in the minds of these people, what, what's, the, what's the goal? I, I guess I could, I could, uh, I could guess the, the goal is if you're trying to reestablish Nazi ideas and ideals, you, you can't have this horrible uh, genocide. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, these, are, these are neo-Nazis uh, of various kinds and shades and degrees of radicalism. There are a number of large number of small groups. Uh, actually, these kind of groups, of course, as an organized entity, are illegal. Uh, this is, again, part of the German uh, system of militant democracy that parties or organizations that are... Uh, deny democracy and seek to establish a dictatorial regime of a Nazi type, these kind of organizations may not be maintained. So the groups basically are illegal, but they operate anyway. And then you have uh, groups, uh, parties like the NPD, the National Democratic Party, uh, which uh, is kind of flirting with neo-Nazism, but is very careful uh, to... Uh, not to transgress a certain line, and therefore they are operating uh, legally, and they participate in elections. They, in East Germany in particular, get quite a bit of support. So, um, uh, despite the law, the all this kind of neo-Nazi activity continues, and there really is no evidence that the law has been effective to do away with it. Hmm. Uh, continue, and as you say, the internet would would. Uh it'd be much harder to prosecute you can you can originate something in a in a in a jurisdiction that the, where germany can't go right well uh germany has asserted universal jurisdiction you might say oh, I see. because okay. the internet of course is globalized and uh it's really impossible to draw national boundaries here uh they have convicted an australian uh of german background uh, who put something into the internet uh, in australia and that was enough. When he came to Germany, they arrested him. Hmm. We're going to take a break, Wood, and we'll come back more with uh, Gunter Louie. Uh, he's written an interesting new book, Outlawing Genocide Denial, The Dilemmas of Official, official Historical Truth. Uh, following the break, we'll get into this idea of official historical truth. And, uh, you know, we're all aware of totalitarian governments, uh, you know, say Stalin, or, or, or we talked about the Nazi Germany, uh, enforcing a particular historical truth. Uh, this is an instance we're talking about uh, today, democratic uh, governments trying to enforce an official historical truth. That can be a bit slippery. That's why uh, I think Professor Louis uh, uses the word dilemma. Uh, we'll talk more about this. Uh, get into uh, genocide education as well following the break. Neil Harbison is an artist who's never seen a color, but with some help from technology, Neil can hear color. So it goes orange, then yellow, then green, then turquoise, blue, and violet is the highest. And he can perceive many more colors than you or me. Stretching our senses, that's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread in Logan. Open Monday through Friday until 3 p.m. A wholesale retail company dedicated to crafting a selection of artisan breads and pastries using old world techniques of preparation and baking. Information at crumbbrothers.com. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. 
In addition to the 25 million people in this country who have been diagnosed with diabetes or who have it but don't yet know that they do, an estimated 79 million people have entered the danger zone known as pre-diabetes. Their blood glucose levels are higher than normal but have not yet risen to the level at which they would indicate a diagnosis of diabetes. In people with pre-diabetes, the pancreas may not be working as efficiently as it once did, or the body may be gradually building a resistance to the insulin it produces so that the hormone can't do as good a job of clearing glucose from the bloodstream. The good news is that type 2 diabetes is preventable. Diabetes prevention is as basic as eating more healthfully, becoming more physically active, and losing a few extra pounds, and it's never too late to start. This is Lisa for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In Germany, it is a crime punishable by law to deny the Holocaust. Other European countries have adopted similar laws. Uh, Germany, uh, their thinking is that they need to be a militant democracy. They need to defend democracy. And uh, some speech is just too high stakes, too dangerous to allow. Uh, The European Union is adopting a framework to outlaw Uh, denial of uh, genocide. Other countries uh, as well, we've uh, cited the example of Switzerland, which uh, includes uh, also denial of the Armenian genocide. Uh, And uh, we're going to get into talking later in the program about uh, some of the dilemmas uh, associated with uh, education in schools and and what you do and how, how you mandate education on that level. You can join the program here. We're talking with Gunter Louie. He is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at University of Massachusetts Amherst, and his latest book is Outlawing Genocide Denial, The Dilemmas of Official Historical Truths, out from University of Utah Press. The number to reach us is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio, also on, uh, on Facebook. Uh, Professor Louis, you uh, you talk in the book about uh, official history. Uh, you, you take yeah. uh, you take an example of Prussia, just one sort of starting example. And then you go on to talk about some others. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, the, this idea of the state mandating an official version of history. Well, the totalitarian democracy, the regimes, um, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union are. Uh, had elaborate schemes of controlling speech, and uh, that not not only controlled uh, speech, but prescribed uh, what was the uh, correct speech. And that included, of course, the writing of history. In other words, there was a definite party line in the Soviet Union, for example, as to what could be said about uh, the 1920s, the famine, uh, what could be said about World War uh, one, two, and so forth. And uh, similarly, in Nazi Germany, uh, the uh, party uh, carefully controlled uh, publications, censorship, uh, and so forth. So, uh, yes, they were committed to a version of historical truth, which I think uh, a liberal democracy, of course, would reject. And so this is why this is so, so interesting in democracies such as Germany's. Uh, if if you're um, sanctioning, uh, if you're punishing uh, certain revisions of, of the official history, uh, should that be done, of course, in, in a democracy? 
Now, I don't want to compare the official history uh, practiced in the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, what was in, in Germany, because it is, of course, limited uh, at the present time in, in the German Republic, Federal Republic. Uh, but uh, the basic principle, unfortunately, is the same, and I think it is, it is dangerous. Yeah, I think that is a, that's an important point. Uh, there, there, there can't be any comparison at all, but uh, the, the principle is, is what we're talking about here. Uh, so I understand, you, you write about this a bit, European historians have reacted, especially, I guess, to this European Union initiative with, with some concern. Yes, they have. Uh, and there's an organization uh, that is quite active in, in France, uh, which uh, rejects the right of politicians to involve themselves in the writing of history, uh, similarly in Italy. But as I mentioned before, notably absent uh, is a forceful opposition in Germany or Austria. And that is due, indeed, probably to the fact that these countries are see themselves as being in a special position and therefore requiring special legislation. We talked about this before. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you why, but I mean, you, you've, uh, you, you've answered that. Uh, I, and I guess they do see themselves in a special position. Yes, they do. They yeah. do. Uh, they feel they simply, uh, given their past and what has happened to democracy uh, earlier, when democracy did not defend itself, uh, they simply do not want to take any any chances. They simply value, uh, we would say, uh, security uh, of the state as more important than individual speech. And the continuation of these laws, I, I, I take it, is on principle. They haven't been all that effective in quelling this type of speech. No, they have not. Uh, the, uh, the violations of the law continue. Uh, 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 Authors uh, who propagate uh, these kind of writings continue to be arrested, tried, and so forth. So, no, it cannot be argued that the uh, uh, law is effective in doing away with this kind of speech. Now, of course, the Germans probably would argue that in the absence of the law, the situation would be worse, mm -hmm. namely that, indeed, there could be danger to the republic. And it's a kind of... Um, uh, eventuality, uh, which, of course, one cannot rule out in principle. Uh, I consider it far-fetched, but uh, it is a very widespread view in Germany that this kind of law is indeed necessary. Mm. Uh, and uh, there, uh, there's a big, I guess, in, at least in this instance, a big cultural gap between Germany and the U.S. Um, I, you know, I, I think seeing through the prism, we have a long tradition of, of upholding the First Amendment, long debates about it, which have generally come down on the side of, of, of the First Amendment, even, uh, you know, allowing speech, which which you personally hate. Um, I, I don't know. I wonder if you've seen that as that as well. You've you've uh, taught in the U.S. Yes, for, for a long time. I mean, I think our whole tradition um, is leaning towards a uh, greater degree of individual freedom in many other areas as well. But certainly as far as uh, freedom of speech, uh, press is concerned, uh, we are in many ways uh, representing an exceptional case. Frequently, Ameri uh, historians talk about American exceptionalism. And I think it's a very good thing. <laughs> I personally, uh, having grown up in, in Germany, uh, I spent the first 15 years of my life uh, during the Nazi regime, and having seen some of it, what it means, uh, I am very happy that, indeed, America represents an exceptional case in this regard. Mm. 
And do you think, do you think, uh, what do you think the view is vice versa? Would, would the Germans generally see Americans as naive on, on this score? Uh, perhaps. Not really, but as I said, they consider themselves in a special position. Uh, democracy having failed once, um, they argue in large part as a result of uh, giving the Nazis free reign to say what they wanted to say. Democracy failed, they don't want to take any more chances of this. Uh, I don't think it's so much uh, criticizing the United States as adhering to a different view. What if you talk a bit about the U.S.? Uh, you, you have a chapter titled American Exceptionalism. Yes. And uh, and uh, one case you look at is, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Marmelstein? Yes. Uh, well, um, we have, a, incidentally, this is very interesting, we have a very powerful, uh, strong uh, uh, and, uh, neo-Nazi organization in this country, uh, the um, Institute of Historical Research, uh, who are very active in uh, distributing uh, neo-Nazi literature, denying the Holocaust uh, on campuses, uh, via email, uh, via, uh, via the Internet, and so forth. Uh, and yet, despite uh, this, uh, this organization, uh, neo-Nazism really does not represent any kind of problem. It's simply not taken seriously by, uh, by most Americans, and that is probably a correct and realistic view. Um, it was this um, organization that uh, organized a competition, and uh, they said if anyone can prove the uh, occurrence of the Holocaust, they will pay a certain amount of money. And it became um, a um, man by the number sign, became involved in litigation. It all went through various uh, echelons and levels of uh, appeal in, in state courts and federal courts, but the upshot of it was um, that uh, nothing really happened. That is to say, uh, genocide denial continues to be freely propagated by the Institute of Historical Research, and uh, in my view, that's probably how it, uh, it should be. As I said, uh, no one takes this kind of literature very serious. Uh, no one engages in debates uh, with these people. Uh, and that is just fine, it seems to me. Uh, a chemist uh, does not engage in debates with an alchemist, and an astronomer does not engage with it in a debate with astrologers. And similarly, it seems to me, uh, one of the historians should not engage in debates with pseudo-historians like uh, these um, genocide deniers, these neo-Nazis. We have a caller. Uh, we'll go to Kevin in Smithfield next. Uh, following the, the call, uh, I want to bring up uh, an interesting recent case, kind of fits in here, the Stolen Valor Act of 2006. Right. Uh, first up, uh, Kevin uh, in Smithfield. Welcome to the program, Kevin. Thank you. Some have turned um, the elevation of the Holocaust as some type of sacrament, and in mocking it, they use the term Holocaustianity. And we know that uh, the murder of Christ was a crime in John 18.31. And then we also know, uh, well, those that believe the scriptures also know from several verses, at, le at least five or six, Acts 2.23, Acts 5.29, Acts 10.39. We know that the Jews did kill Christ. And... Um, 
So, you know, uh, it, it doesn't really seem that far-fetched to see that persons who want to elevate the Holocaust as a sacrament, that uh, it did replace the murder of Christ as mankind's worst crime. Okay, thanks, Kevin. Um, I don't know, what do you, what's your response, Professor? Well, I think uh, most... Uh, both Protestant and Catholic theologians would take exception to the statement of the gentleman that the Jews killed Christ and that the scriptures prove it. I think the view of scripture these days is, is quite different. Uh, that was uh, formalized at Vatican Council II uh, about 30 years ago, and I think by now uh, this is considered a, a charge that is uh, malicious and dangerous and supports anti-Semitism. As to the Holocaust becoming a sacrament, I do not see it that way. I think uh, the Holocaust represented in many ways a unique event in history. It's the first time that a state undertook to destroy an entire people, man, woman, and child, uh, searched the, the victims all over Europe, and then began to destroy them systematically, factory-style, in gas chambers. This had never happened before. I think this is the kind of event we do not celebrate as a sacrament, but we must remember what happened, why it happened, so it will never happen again. What about um, the, the, you know comparing uh, Holocaust with, with other genocides, Armenian genocide, and, and unfortunately and depressingly, uh, this continues, Cambodia, Rwanda, Bosnia? Well, I think it's not illegitimate to compare. The historians engage in comparison all the time. Uh, I think um, it is important to remember differences uh, because, as I said, the Holocaust, uh, the destruction of European Jewry in many ways, uh, was a unique event. Uh, nothing like this had ever happened before. That does not mean it cannot happen again, and indeed it has. We have, had the gen- we have seen the genocide in Cambodia, Rwanda, uh, and so forth. Uh, and I think we have to do our best to prevent all kinds of genocide uh, from taking place. I think they should not be equated. There are important differences, but uh, they are to be fought nevertheless. Before we get on to, uh, I want to talk about the Armenian genocide and interesting cases. Uh, you, you've, uh, and you treat in the book, uh, cases of laws which um, punish the denial of that genocide and, and other laws which uh, punish the affirmation of, the, of that genocide. But I, I do want to talk about stolen valor uh, law. This is uh, in the chapter American Exceptionalism, and uh, this gets into, um, uh, you know, punishment, or at least proposed punishment of, of speech, which uh, in which I get, well, you can tell us about this case, stolen valor law. Um. Um, Congress passed a law that uh, made it unlawful uh, to claim to have received uh, a medal for distinction in war uh, falsely, uh, false, falsely claim uh, having received, and uh, the uh, federal courts and eventually the United Supreme Court um, invalidated this law as a kind of infringement of free speech, which the First Amendment does not allow. Uh, Here we have, again, an example of uh, false speech, uh, which uh, nevertheless uh, is not protected. In other words, uh, under the First Amendment, uh, false speech 
is not protected. It may have less intellectual value, perhaps, but it is not protected. And any law that seeks to outlaw this kind of speech cannot pass muster under the First Amendment. Uh, it's interesting that this this rose up, um, you know, in in the U.S. And periodically there are challenges to the, the First Amendment. But uh, uh, interesting that uh, this was deemed, um, at least by Congress, as as being beyond the pale. That you you shouldn't be able to, I guess, dishonor military heroes in this way. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not implausible. It's not. It's understandable. Uh, it's the kind of uh, law that has a certain uh, justification, perhaps. But nevertheless, we do have the First Amendment, and under that uh, constitutional provision, uh, even bad and false speech uh, is protected. So that's the price we pay. But I think it's a price worth paying. Have you? Uh, are there other examples of uh, speeches which punish false speech other than uh, genocide denial? You know, around other countries. Uh, well, in in Turkey, um, it, it is uh, in practice, uh, although not specifically by by law, it is uh, illegal and criminal to affirm the Armenian genocide uh, of 1915. Uh, this is an example. Uh, of uh, legislation that, uh, again, seeks to establish a kind of official truth. The uh, Turkish line is uh, that, yes, there were victims. Uh, Armenians died in considerable numbers, but this was part um, of a wartime calamity that affected other groups as well, and there was no um, official uh, genocide. They also minimized the number of uh, Turkish, uh, of Armenian victims, of course. And as you said before, in Switzerland, the the, the law is on the opposite side. You, you... Right, and and Switzerland. Yeah, that's very interesting, really, because uh, in in Switzerland it's the opposite. Um, if you deny uh, the Armenian genocide, you can get into trouble. Uh, as I said, I mentioned before, it's the only instance in Europe where. Um, uh, the uh, law is not only with denial of the Holocaust, but denial of genocide, period. Hmm. I wonder, before we go to break, I wonder if you tell us uh, uh, about a case in Canada that you uh, treat uh, in, in the book. This, I think... uh, the Zindel case, uh, this was a German uh, immigrant to uh, Canada who established a very uh, elaborate, successful commercial enterprise in Nazi memorabilia uh, and also in um, neo-Nazi uh, writings, uh, including denial of the Holocaust. Uh, he was eventually uh, charged um, under a um, Canadian law that uh, punishes false speech in the media. It again went through various stages of appeal and eventually the Canadian Supreme Court um, deemed uh, this law unconstitutional. Uh, Zundel uh, eventually came to America, where he felt safer than in Canada, and from here he was extradited to Germany, where he was tried and jailed. Hmm. And uh, I think uh, this the, the law was uh, was overturned eventually. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, Canadian uh, adherence to uh, their view of uh, free speech. Uh, there. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, more with uh, Gunter Louis. The book is Outlawing Genocide Denial, The Dilemmas of Official Historical Truth. It's out from University of Utah Press. 
And when we come back, uh, Professor, I, uh, I want to get into uh, state-mandated genocide education. You, you have an interesting case of uh, teaching the Armenian genocide in Massachusetts. There's some dilemmas there. That following the break. Hi, it's Lynn Rosetto Casper. This week, comedian Jim Gaffigan joins us with his latest take on America's culinary scene. From feeding kids and family Sunday dinners to his own latest food obsession. Join us. That's The Splendid Table, the show about life's appetites from APN. Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thank you for supporting UPR's fall fundraising campaign with your membership. We also thank Rocky Mountain Power for making a generous donation to sustain local news, information, and music heard in Ivan's in Santa Clara, Utah, and Beaver Dam, Arizona on 89.1 FM. You're listening to Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Gunter, Le- uh, Gunter Louis, excuse me, his professor. Uh, his book is Outlawing Genocide Denial, the Dilemmas of Historical, uh, Official Historical Truth. Uh, it's out from University of Utah Press. And uh, Gunter Louis is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. And uh, we've been talking about uh, laws in Germany, which outlaw genocide denial. You can be fined. You can be sent to prison for this. Uh, their view is that uh, due to past failures of democracy, theirs has to be a militant democracy. Of course, we have a different view with the First Amendment in the United States, but that is a fairly exceptional view, as the professor has pointed out. Other laws in uh, Switzerland and, and France and uh, Austria, um, and we've uh, talked just before the break about the interesting example of uh, laws in Turkey, which uh, you can get punished for affirming the uh, Armenian genocide, and in Switzerland you can get in trouble for denying it. Um, and the number is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. If you'd like to join the program, you can join us at uh, on Twitter at uh, Utah Public Radio, and our email is upraxcess at gmail.com. Professor, I wonder if you could talk about this interesting case of teaching the Armenian Genocide in Massachusetts public schools. Yeah, Massachusetts is one of several American states that mandate Holocaust uh, education. Um, the uh, law setting up the uh, um, program as a state uh, educational program required that the um, curricular material include all sides, all points of view, um, and a, two um, teachers in Massachusetts. Um, challenged the way the law was being carried out. They argued that uh, positions that challenged the Armenian view uh, were left out, uh, that the, the curriculum therefore had become uh, one-sided. Uh, this again went all the way through uh, various levels of appeal in federal court, and uh, eventually a federal court upheld the uh, educational program on the grounds that a curriculum uh, is the exclusive preserve of state educational authorities and that an individual teacher or any citizen for that matter could not challenge it. Um, And that even revisions to a curriculum made in response to political pressure uh, were uh, not an issue. 
the First Amendment simply was not implicated here. Um, the Supreme Court in 2011 uh, denied an appeal for rehearing, uh, so the challenge by the pro-Turkish teachers uh, failed. Um, I think uh, this decision is in many ways a controversial one uh, because, for example, it seems to me that if a school board were to institute a program that teaches that Negroes are, that blacks are uh, inferior, uh, I'm reasonably sure that um, the uh, courts would uh, entertain uh, a challenge. It would not consider this kind of speech protected by the uh, First Amendment. Uh, there's no such case on record, so it's just speculation necessarily. But I think the ruling of the federal court here is uh, questionable in my view. Where should the decision then be, be made, and, and how, how much of an opposing view should be allowed through in, in a case like a, like a school district? Should, should, for example, when the Armenian genocide comes up in a, in a unit in a school, should, um, should the Turkish point of view be presented as well? What, uh, where should the line be drawn? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, and we're dealing here with a genuine historical controversy where uh, Turks and Armenians take very different positions. And it seems to me, uh, just as historians uh, debate this issue, uh, this should be reflected. The fact that there is such a debate should be reflected in the curriculum so that mm-hmm. positions are... Uh, defending the uh, Turkish point of view should be represented as well as those representing the Armenian position. Uh, what, what about if you take it to the Holocaust? Uh, should, uh, you know, should there be an example of Holocaust and IR uh, in, in that unit? <laughs> I do not believe so. I think that is exactly where we are seeing a clear difference. The, uh, the Holocaust uh, is considered an historical fact uh, by all except uh, pseudo-historians like David Irving in England and others uh, in various countries. Uh, these people are not considered serious historians. Uh, the historical profession uh, knows that there was a Holocaust as well as it knows anything at all. Uh, when it comes to the Armenian genocide, we have different positions. Uh, the uh, arguments on each side uh, conflict. Uh, the evidence produced conflicts. It is simply not a clearly historical fact as is the Holocaust. It uh, involves an historical controversy that probably will remain a historical controversy for some time. Now, you, uh, I'm sure you've uh, you know seen the lamentations in the press about the demise of newspapers, and th- this is moving to uh, you know. To, Pivoting to a, a somewhat different topic, there are some some crossovers, at least in my mind. Um, lamentations about the uh, lack of uh, demise of newspapers, the the lack, therefore, of, of uh, editors being curators of information, at least uh, verifiers of information coming through, and everybody can get in their own silos and and uh, and can reinforce for themselves their version of history, more and more with technology. Um, I wonder if you see this as the the way history is going to be going, or you know who who decides. Well, I think uh, history should be left to the historians. Uh, it should not be an issue uh, for newspaper editorials, uh, for columnists who have their axe to grind. Uh, uh, history is written by historians, and I think that's how it should be. And that's why I think it is possible uh, to consider some historians as better than others, and that's why it is possible 
uh, to speak of historical truth, uh, and I argue this in my book. Uh, so not anything uh, it can be considered history, uh, and uh, lines have to be drawn. Now, that does not mean that you should uh, uh, outlaw uh, certain kind of writings, as is done in, in Europe. But I think, um, as I think I mentioned before, just as uh, astronomers do not debate with astrologists, it seems to me uh, historians do not have to debate with pseudo-historians about the reality of the Holocaust. We are out of time. We'll leave it there. Uh, there is a lot of interesting stuff in the book, Outlawing Genocide Denial, the Dilemmas of Official Historical Truth. Uh, Gunter Louie is uh, the author. Thanks so much for being with us. A pleasure. Thank you very much. And uh, we hope that you will join us uh, tomorrow for the uh, program. Uh, actress and writer Elena Passarello will uh, be with us. Uh, she's uh, written a book about uh, voice in the, the physical sense and, and the metaphorical sense. Very interesting, the, uh, the art of theater and other related topics. We'll have that uh, tomorrow. And on Wednesday, we'll have an election recap for you. Hope that you'll uh, call and comment uh, for us on uh, how you think the election went. We'll have full election night coverage tomorrow evening from 7 to 10 here at Utah Public Radio as well. All of that to come. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. In many of the diverse Native American storytelling traditions, the coyote plays the same role over and over, that of the smart, sly trickster. For those who study coyote behavior, this characterization is well-deserved. Coyotes are incredibly adaptable creatures, intelligent, observant, curious, and, well, wily. Their ability to adjust how they live to fit their circumstances can be seen in almost every aspect of the coyote's life. For starters, coyotes will eat just about anything. As omnivores and opportunistic feeders, coyotes might be found hunting creatures as diverse as small mammals, birds, snakes, mule deer fawns, insects or fish, and also seek out grasses, berries, and seeds. They can hunt alone or in packs and are not below feasting on carrion, rummaging through your garbage or raiding the cantaloupe patch. The environments in which coyotes can be found are similarly diverse. While once restricted to the American West, coyotes are now widespread across all of North America and parts of Central America, and can be found in nearly every ecosystem from deserts to forests to urban areas from Belize to Alaska. Sometimes called song dogs, these social creatures are known for their nighttime solos and choruses. Their scientific name, Canis latrans, literally means barking dog, and their many vocalizations help pack members and families bond and communicate over long distances. Coyotes have strong family ties, especially during spring when puppies are born to monogamous coyote couples. Coyotes are territorial and defend their space vigorously, especially when breeding and denning. Mating occurs from January through February, and after a gestation period of only 60 to 62 days, Three to 12 pups are born blind and helpless in March or April. Young coyotes are nursed for four to five weeks, at which point they transition to regurgitated meals brought by both parents. Youngsters tag along on family hunts at eight weeks old and are able to hunt independently by fall. Interestingly, studies have shown that even coyote breeding is adaptable, 
a phenomenon called density-dependent reproduction. In areas where coyote populations are stable, females bear lower numbers of pups. But in areas where there is disturbance to the population, for example, through increased predation or hunting, females have larger litters. On average, newborn pups have less than a 50% chance of surviving to adulthood due to threats from disease, predators, and starvation. It therefore makes sense for females to bear more offspring in areas where threats may be even greater. Thank you to the Rocky Mountain Power Foundation for supporting the research and development of this Wild About Utah topic. For the Stokes Nature Center and Wild About Utah, this is Andrea Liberator. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. Skip the waiting room and join us for another edition of Zorba Pastor on Your Health. You'll get all that great advice without those lousy magazines, plus a heart-healthy recipe for... Spicy bison lettuce wraps. We always have a great time, so will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health. From PRI, Public Radio International. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah on Utah Public Radio. I've been your producer, Andrew Robertson. And up next, we have the TED Radio Hour.